Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. Welcome back to Yoga After Dark. Today, I have V Ann Taylor on the line. And V Ann Taylor is my arch nemesis. Though we have come to various agreements throughout our life, and so we are no longer arch nemeses in truth, we are actually good friends. Um, but Anne is a, an AYT yoga therapist, and she and I did our 500-hour um, register yoga teacher training thing together. This was years and years back. Um, she also has a background in mental health and addiction and also a developmental, um, how do you say it? And developmental disabilities or developmental, developmental disabilities field. I, I know that it may have changed the name even since I worked in that field. It's been like more than 20 years. So when I was working there, it was, it morphed, it had many names, but eventually was known as the developmental disabilities field. So for people who had um, developmental disabilities, meaning they were born with usually cognitive limitations, so, and sometimes physical disabilities as well. Gotcha, gotcha. So, Anne, um, I've known you for some time, and so I don't need to be, you know, introduced to you, but everybody who is listening does, or many people who are listening do. So, um, will you refresh me and them anew on why we are arch nemeses? Well, I think we should start with the first time I met you, which was um, at a yoga studio in our neighborhood when you mm -hmm. were a student. But I think you would, and I heard from someone that you were going to be doing a yoga training at another studio where we both landed in the 500-hour training, which was a Krishnacharya lineage studio. Yes. But I saw you at this studio, and I said, Michael, and you're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And then I realized that previously at that other studio in the city, it was in Manhattan and it was in a beautiful historic building. And they had, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, were they, what were the floors at Yoga Sutra? What, what kind of floors were they? They were beautiful. Were they marble? No, no, they were wood. The, well, the studios had wood floors. Oh, the, the lobby. The lobby was like a marble type. Yeah, and, it, was, it was fancy dance. Definitely. You and I were at a holiday party there before I knew who you were. And I remembered later. Yeah. And we, we did sliding on the marble floor in our socks to um, the Charlie Brown Christmas songs, pretending we were ice skaters. Yeah, this makes, yes, exactly. This makes absolute sense. And it's all coming back to me vividly. Because, you know, all the memories are stuck in the chitta, stuck in the mind. You exactly. Just reminded the, the, of it. The, the, the vrittis keep... And then they, they spin out like a little wheel that like, like a bingo wheel that throws little memories out. Like it's like, <laughs> like, like B37 ice skating on the marble floors at Yoga Sutra at the holiday party. <laughs> D21. <laughs> Michael. Yes. <laughs> now we'll get to W55. Whew. Michael and I were in a training that, had many kind of shifts and changes in terms mm -hmm. of the personnel, in terms of the focus. And at one point when they were in one of those shifts, we were 
asked what we wanted to have more of in the training. And I had advocated for some adaptive yoga. And you're like, nope. And I'm like, and it was one of these things where people kind of drew their breath because the two of us kind of puffed up like cats in an alley. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, I, I didn't sign up for that. And we both kind of looked at each other and it was like, mm, you know, it was cat fight was getting ready to happen. And then over time, what happened is we were in this training and I was having trouble with the Devanagari. The mm -hmm. Sanskrit pronunciation was okay for me, but the writing of the script and the understanding of the script was very difficult for me. And it's probably why I have such terrible handwriting. And um, our, because I have such terrible handwriting is probably an indicator of why it was so difficult. And you offered to help me and in exchange for margaritas. And we went to a local restaurant and sat outside. And in turn, I offered you any of my knowledge in terms of anatomy. Mm -hmm. And so... Which is particularly difficult for me. I, like my brain does not grasp it. And <laughs> for me, anatomy, for you, the, the Devanagari, it's almost like I imagine it goes back to your learning um, as an opera singer. Yeah. Learning languages yeah. and... I'm okay with languages, but there was something about that particular script. So it was the reading of the script, but you just were very adept at that. And I, for me, I grasp anatomy. What I told someone recently is I see anatomy the way that the woman in um, the Queen's Gambit sees a chess game. So mm. I will look away when I'm teaching. And what's happening is she would look at the ceiling and see the chess pieces moving. So for me, a human body is like playing chess with a chess player. And if I know them and I know their preferences, it's the same thing I do when I see a body. I know that the queen can only can move in all these different directions, but the bishop can only move in certain ways and the rook can move certain ways. So I know that bones and muscles can only move in certain directions, but there's more predictable patterns with a person, mm -hmm. way that there's a predictable pattern with a chess player. And your understanding of the, the Devanagari script and the reading of it and the how to formulate, put the, the, the letters together was extraordinary. So I think what happened is we came to appreciate one another because we have a respect for the other's knowledge and the fact that we were both traditionalists in our own way. <laughs> Yeah, we are we are definitely both traditionalists in our own way, and uh, you know, of course, everybody listening to this knows that I'm a I'm an Ashtangi. You know, that's how I identify myself in the in the yoga world. Um, and uh, but and you have a very extensive Iyengar background. Yes, without being an Iyengar teacher, because conforming is not my best it's not my best suit. So I. <laughs> Of course, I would. I've traveled as far afield as London, Turkey, and Greece to study with people that studied with Iyengar or studied with students of Iyengar. Um, and I assisted a teacher in the city who was an Iyengar teacher who had her own practice mm -hmm. downtown in her house. But always people that had their own little form of rebellion. But yes, so we both came from a Krishnamacharya lineage, which so. You had Patabi Joyce as your primary teacher. I studied with students of Iyengar as my primary teacher. And, and we also studied with 
a student of Desikachar, who was the son of Krishnamacharya. So it's kind of like we met in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had, yeah, we, I, thought, I thought it was a very beautiful meeting in the middle. I remember we were talking about a, an asana one day, I, and I'm pretty sure it, it was Dhanurasana. So the, the bow coming up from the floor, basically. Um, and we were doing it in, in a different way than I had done it before. And uh, the specific way we were doing it, and I honestly uh, am not recalling exactly what was changed in it, but it, it really kind of got into some different nooks and crannies into my body than the, the asana had ever gotten in before. And you sketched me this lovely picture of you with a vacuum cleaner vacuuming <laughs> underneath a sofa. This was your interpretation of doing the asana in a different way. It's like, well, now instead of just vacuuming the floor, we're actually going to lift the furniture up and get under there where we actually need to get. <laughs> and that I I now remember it, and I remember the pose. I remember the, the the variation that you were asked to do. But that's so funny. I do remember now that vacuuming. So, as you know, I kind of have comical metaphors for when I'm talking to people because sometimes I'll have a serious conversation with someone about how the asana is expressing whatever their blockages are or whatever they're releasing. But sometimes I do it in a very lighthearted way, which I know you do too. Um, well, otherwise life is way too serious. I mean, let's be yeah. honest about it. Right. And, and yoga is way too serious. Yoga, yeah. you know, yoga is a, when you boil it down, yoga is like a very serious thing. Um, I mean, we're trying to, you know, release our soul uh, into the great beyond, but. Um, and but the preparation means you're supposed to be like, shutting everything out and just going inside. So it's a very solitary process in the end. So yeah. it's like we're trying to get as much fun as we can before we hit the end of the road. Yeah, exactly. We are just, we are, yeah, we, that's right. We are, we are basically, you know, getting towards the end of the night at the bar and we know it's going to be last call. And so we're just trying to, to pound out the shots. Yeah, and we're doing a little tabletop dancing. Yeah, you know, yeah, kind yeah. Of like maybe singing bad karaoke. You yeah, know, we're possible, kind of it all possible nipple tassels. That yeah, exactly. Thing. Swirl it around. <laughs> give a little shimmy shake. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like the people who say they're not doing that. I'm kind of like, are you really not doing that? Or are you just doing it secretly? <laughs> are you home? Are, no are one you can see you. <laughs> I always would say to my students, it's very likely that you're going to see me being a jerk trying to get on the subway or a Dwayne Reed. So please be advised, I am not a perfect person. Yeah, I just want them to know because otherwise they, people have this notion of us and I think neither one of us are going to be known for being exceptionally sweet. Yeah, this is true. This is yeah, cool. another trait that we share. I, I just want to tell you the what happened in the pose was it was with Chase Bosard, yeah. who was a student of Jessica Char's long term, and he was talking about the um, releasing of the hip flexors and not sort of and not letting the femurs externally rotate. I believe so. He really wanted you to keep the femurs internally rotated so that the um, ASIS, the anterior superior iliac spine, so your hip bones in the front, 
we're not kind of widening, but kind of keeping a straight trajectory. Does that make sense? Yes. So that you were completely open in your hip flexors and we're not defaulting by letting the legs roll out a little bit. But I also know you have extraordinary range in your spinal extension for the people who are not anatomy savvy. Means Michael has extraordinary capacity for back bending and forward bending. So your spine has range in both directions. But I remember hearing about you doing a whole bunch of dropbacks in a class when you were sorting out a relationship ending and someone said, oh, I was in class with Michael and he was upset about some breaking up with someone. So he did all these dropbacks in class, like endlessly, like you're <laughs> pushing your heart open. This was, and I think for, for you and for me, we both kind of use our bodies as ways to process our emotions mm-hmm. and to feel like we can open or close or release so that we feel like we can, we kind of manage them kinesthetically, like with our bodies sometimes. Oh, yeah. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think oh, no. that. Most definitely. And so, you know, for those of you who don't realize it, um, I have, you know, deep seated issues that I have used the practice Welcome to, to help the club, me baby. <laughs> over time. Um, yeah, and it, and it does, it comes out uh, some, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes in a very, very physical way. And you just feel like you have to go through something on the mat and, you know, get it done. And honestly, sometimes that's something when you're doing it looks a little crazy and, and honestly might be a, a little crazy. It's okay. Uh, you know, I think as long as you're in a, in a nice supportive environment and you've got a good teacher watching over you to make sure you don't kind of jump off the deep end, we can do it that way. I, I worry when people kind of go um, lone wolf on that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, it's, um, it can be, I think the, the good teacher is the key and it doesn't mean that the teacher is with you every time you practice, but I think both of us have gone out of our way to seek out teachers who are mentors who helped us. So that it's almost like their voice is still with you even if they're not around and you're going through something, you have something to draw upon. Yeah, yeah, which is a great, uh, yeah. not even a great thing. It is an indispensable part mm-hmm. of the process, honestly. Um, so I'm, I'm recalling an, another memory of you and me. And this was at the Chinatown Y. And I know you you taught at the Chinatown Y, or maybe you still do, I don't know, but you did for some time. And I was there because Sharat was on one of his uh, North American tours. Mm-hmm. And so we were having like crazy giant led Ashtanga class in the in the gymnasium where they usually have basketball. And there, you know, there were probably like 300 of us or something like there to do lead class with Sharat. And I remember walking in and like going towards the room and then you were there in a little side room Mm -hmm. um, teaching all these, I'll call them post-menopausal women. Um, I think most of the the women in the room were post-menopausal. And I know that you have made a practice of teaching um, older women and women with pelvic floor issues and a bunch of other things. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your experience teaching specific populations 
especially since you've been teaching specific populations, but in a very open environment like a YMCA? Um, I'd be happy to. I will start by saying that in my introduction to teaching yoga began when I studied in a, a different lineage, which was the Kripalu lineage. I was in Boston studying Ashtanga, actually. I used to do lead Ashtanga classes. I don't know if you know that. Um, no, this is, this is news to me, Anne. <laughs> I think, do you remember David Vendetti? Mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, I used to study with him and this woman who ran Back Bay Yoga. Mm -hmm. And then there was some people, a woman who used to teach at a women's gym who was an Ashtanga person and studied with um, Doug, oh, I forgot his last name. She studied with the Svensson brothers and someone else. I'm trying to remember. Maybe it wasn't Doug was the other person, but definitely um, the Svensson brothers, David and I don't know what his brother's name was. And I studied with her, but I came to New York after having opted to do the Kripalu training because I lived in Boston and it was close by. And I had no infrastructure, I had no network of teachers. I had moved to New York to take a job working in the addictions community in a harm reduction program. For those of you who don't know, it means that I was working with people who are HIV positive in this situation and actively using drugs and or alcohol. Um, some of them are also engaging in unsafe sexual practices, i.e. they were because they, they were not protecting themselves and others because you can also get other strains of the virus. So there are people that were engaging in high risk behaviors is what I'm just going to say. Mm -hmm. So I was doing that and I wanted to teach yoga, but I had no community and no, everyone I had known who was doing yoga was in Boston. So I just came in, I had to start afresh. So my first job teaching yoga was as a volunteer. I applied for the Lower East Side Girls Club mm. and they were having an outdoor farmer's market over by the FDR. Mm -hmm. And I taught the kids outdoors while they were helping out between helping out with the, at the farmer's market. And so my first experience was teaching kids as part of a, a community development initiative. My second experience was teaching at the HIV clinic where I worked. They incorporated my teaching into the offerings for the program. So I was actually working with people, some of whom were clean and sober, but other people who are not and whose bodies were suffering the ill effects of substance use and being HIV positive, which was make, compromising their immune system. So I started off. We should take a moment to say, um, because the medication, the treatment surrounding HIV has very much changed in the last decade or two. Yeah. And so you're talking about a bit further back. Um, and it, it, was a, it's a, it was a more, I guess, complicated issue on the surface, if mm -hmm. you will, at that, at that point. It was 2004, 2005. So it was, yeah, it was a good 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the medications definitely took a toll on people's bodies using crack cocaine, drinking, using heroin, all of those things also took a toll on their body. And sometimes people were not compliant with their medications. Mm -hmm. So they were amazing people. I mean, I love them. And, um, the job itself was challenging, but not because of the clients. 
and getting to teach them yoga and meditation was really wonderful. I mean, I used to bring in any tools I could to help them. Um, so I would bring in essential oils. I, you know, we, the program had extra money. They ordered bolsters. So I started off teaching a very active practice and I realized that people couldn't really keep up that the people that could were healthy and sober and they could also have opted to have done yoga elsewhere. Like one guy has since passed away from cancer, but he was sober, but he just came because he really liked being part of a community. And, but for the most part, the rest of them were actively using. So I ended up teaching them restorative yoga. So that was my introduction to a community center or teaching outdoors as part of a community development initiative and at an addictions clinic. So I never started in a studio. Hmm. Um, in the class, I got a studio to hire me and, but they hired me as a sort of a tandem project that I also was helping them develop their community outreach initiative. So I was always from the beginning, sort of the two were always paired. And so by the time I got to the Chinatown Y, it was through a contact through the Lower East Side Girls Club that sent me a, a job posting actually. I was teaching a class that was primarily seniors because it was 10 in the morning, Chinatown, East Village, and some people came from the West Village. And I remember over time the class changed, but I remember teaching a class on one day and I was making it just a little bit harder because there was also some stay-at-home moms. Mm -hmm. So there were different demographic. Um, and this one woman says in the middle of class, isn't this a time we're supposed to be relaxing? <laughs> she was like halfway through the class, very loudly. In other words, like she was really not happy about the fact that I was keeping them standing and moving. And over time, I just realized that I needed more information to be able to help people because mm -hmm. I, one of the people who I met when I was teaching at the addictions clinic was I taught um, in a neighborhood and we all would take public transportation together to and from Brooklyn to this other neighborhood, um, Staten Island. I was working in Staten Island and living in Brooklyn. So we were all taking the ferry and this woman who was one of the ferry riders who worked for legal aid told me about the physical therapy office and I was introduced to the owner. And that's how I became involved with working with pelvic pain patients. And again, I needed more information. So every time I would take on a new project, I was like, wow, I really need to learn more. So I decided as I was leaving this addictions clinic, I was leaving my full-time job. It was like leaping out of a burning building. It, it wasn't, I was not happy in that work anymore. Again, not because of the clients. It was just, it was challenging to do this kind of work in New York. Certainly. I come from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the agency I worked for was Harvard affiliated. They got historic preservation awards for their buildings. It was all very <laughs> nice, nice. And then I got thrown into this kind of mosh pit of like dog eat dog, you know, contract work and get the clients in, keep them moving. So it had nothing to do with them. It just had to do with the nature of the fact that funding sources in New York, at least for the place I worked for, required a different approach. Mm -hmm. So I ended up 
working until I decided like, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I got offered a job through the community development organization, Lower East Side Girls Club to teach kids in, as part of, in a school program. My contacts through the studio, a friend referred me to a after school program that had a post 9-11 grant to teach yoga to children impacted by 9-11 because I had moved in 2004. So there was still a lot going on post 9-11 and then I got the referral from someone to meet the physical therapist who, who was, had a pelvic pain practice. And I decided at that time that I wanted more training. So I decided to, to enroll in a yoga teacher training that my former teacher in Boston was starting. It was her first group of students and she had an Ashtanga Iyengar background and she was a biopsychologist. So I learned a lot about therapeutic applications of yoga for the nervous system and also neuromuscular alignment. So that just started me on my way. Is that a long, a short answer, a long answer to a short question? I, I think it's a very informative answer. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you gave it. Um, <clears throat> what do you find? Because you, you, you keep saying, you know, I needed more information. I needed more information which in, in my own yoga teaching life, I always feel that way. I'm like, okay, I need to learn something else. I need to learn something more in depth, you know, that sort of thing. And how do you <clears throat> go about, I guess, um, first of all, giving yourself the time to do it? because it takes time. And as a, as a yoga teacher person, we, we tend to be quite busy um, because, you know, we have rent to pay. Um, how do you, you know, get, your, get yourself the time to do that? And also, how do you find, how do you go about finding your credible sources for giving you more information? Especially as you, as we are in this, um, in this system, it's called a system, for more and more years, um, you know, you kind of, you do end up in some ways running out of people mm -hmm. that, that you can learn new things from, you know, or that know less than you. Um, that's just part of aging and doing a same thing, you know, going deeper. So how do you, how do you find these sources? How do you vet these sources? Um, where, is, where does all that come from? Well, when I first started out, like I said, I had studied at Kripalu and I was lucky there. It was just a matter of the luck of the draw that I ended up learning from the guy who had been the second in charge at Kripalu, who had a 15 hour a day practice of asana, pranayama and meditation, <laughs> who was living as a renunciate. Mm -hmm. So I just happened to get very lucky because he was the most senior teacher there um, after Amrit Desai was asked to step down. Mm -hmm. So, and he was very stern and he was very informed and very committed, um, very intimidating, but really, you know, a good person with a, a strong intention, a lot of tapas, as we would say, a lot of intensity. And I think the teachers, even when I, I don't know about you, but when I started off practicing yoga, my 
interest in different teachers changed over time. The more I knew, even just looking for teachers as a practitioner, I became, I would listen to friends and they would say, and I would try the person. And for me, it was a question of not just did it feel good, but was I getting information? And I used the same approach as I did for looking for jobs in mental health of, I had mentors who, I had a, a boss who I'm still in touch with, who had a background as an artist and also favored the anti-psychiatry movement hmm. with R.D. Lang and understanding of the idea that um, a psychotic break is a rite of passage rather than something to be suppressed. Mm -hmm. And I had another boss who went to the Harvard Divinity School and the Ed School. So he had a combination of, he, he'd studied psychology of comparative religions. So my supervision sessions with him kind of had a, a little bit of a Eastern philosophy overlay in addition to clinical psychology. And then I had another boss who was very plain spoken and very direct and just get it done. Um, not dissimilar to Guta in some ways, just very, I remember <laughs> our shared teacher Guta, and I told her that I had to remember a chant for our sutra lessons, and I was nervous, and I said, my sympathetic nervous system is acting up, and she said, just tell it to be quiet. There was no discussion. It was just like, just have a conversation. End of story. Very concrete. And I think what I look for is people that are willing to push boundaries and do some exploration, but from an informed place. So you as a tr classically trained opera singer, you know that you have to learn scales. You have to learn languages or certain things. You can't just go off and be like, la, 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 la. There's all, you know, it all looks like in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, like it's all this thing, but there's a lot of thought that goes into that. Or people compare, someone talked about the way that I teach is almost like jazz improv. So that those jazz musicians don't just improv. It's not like they just decide. There's thought that goes into it and, and they're studying, they're very serious, and then they may decide to break out. So I'm always looking for people that have some sort of classical orientation, but then go their own way. So that's really what I would say for me is someone who's willing to be disciplined enough to learn from traditionalists, but also having their own thoughts and ideas so that they're willing to push the boundaries and maybe try something different. Yeah, I like that. And I think that, um, and I, I think I would throw myself in the traditionalist camp. Um, but, uh, even when you are quote unquote, a traditionalist, if you've been doing this for a while, you become more and more, of an individual within that traditional scheme. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise you're just an automaton, you know, you're, you're just repeating exactly what someone else has, has told you, which is not, I don't think that is the, the purpose of the, the guru-shishya relationship, the, the teacher-student relationship. Certainly if you're going to learn you know, Vedic chanting, as we both have from, from Guta, you are looking to do a prescribed shwara, a prescribed melody and a prescribed meter and all of that stuff. Um, it's a very, very specific thing. Um, 
because it's uh, information being passed down in a very specific way. It has been for millennia. But we're, when we're looking at yoga, um, one of the purposes of yoga is that it is supposed to be adaptable. It is supposed to be plastic. You know, it should be bendable and warpable, um, which is why Patanjali has a thousand brilliant shining heads, you know, so he can teach a thousand different individuals all in individual ways. Um, and so even if you're going to hold on to a, a specific tradition, you still must be an individual within that tradition. But like you say, um, you know, if you're going to be a musician, you have to learn foundations. You have to learn the scales. You have to learn the fingerings. If you're, if you're, you know, playing a certain type of instrument, all of that stuff. You, if you don't learn those foundations, then you don't, you don't get to improv. You don't get to blossom into having your own voice. You know, um, because you're, you've built your, your castle on a foundation of sand. Yes, and so it just kind of deteriorates around you. Because there's not enough discipline. If you think of the Sutra Shtiram Sukham Asanam, you need the steadiness, which is the foundations, and the ease, which is could be the interpretation of what we've learned. But there's a grounding in our theoretical knowledge that helps us to see things. So you and I are not making things up and saying, in my, you know, I think your la 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 is this. <laughs> like we're speaking from. We were, we were taught things about energy, like when you saw me on my, I might as well just say it, my failed personal ad date. I was <laughs> to Michael. I, this is how this all came about. I was on a, a very, very rapidly failing personal ad date. <laughs> and um, I jumped out of my seat and saw Michael on the corner about to cross. And I'm yelling, yelling, Michael, Michael Gu. Um, which did not win me points with my failing personal ad date. Um, but I pulled Michael over and said, could you explain more about Ayurveda and the reason why I, as a Kapha dosha type, um, and I'm going to let Michael explain, should be eating warm cooked food and why you can eat salad and sweets because this person was a physician um, and a psychiatrist, actually, mm -hmm. but um, didn't really understand why when we had ordered lunch somewhere else, why I was opting to have warm salmon and warmed cooked zucchini as mm -hmm. opposed to a salad with cooked chicken or whatever. And so I pulled you over to explain. And the thing is, I just take pieces of that. And I was also trying to explain to him how that also could affect personality and other things so that we're always kind of processing you and I, when we see people, we're looking at, we both haven't even with, you say you don't have a knowledge of anatomy, but you do, you have a very intuitive knowledge of anatomy, which you learn from your own practice and from assisting senior teachers so that you know what a body's going to do. And I learned it, in two ways. I learned it intuitively and then I just, it became an interest for me just the way that chanting and Sanskrit is, has, and philosophy are an interest for you. It's not that I'm not interested in them any sooner than you're not interested in anatomy. It's just what we've chosen to highlight, but there are always 
those filters are running through our brain when we see people. So we're not just looking at them and saying, oh, you're doing Marichyasana A, B, or C, or one, two, or three. I think you use one, two, and three in the Sanskrit um, series, or excuse me, in the Ashtanga series, as opposed to A, B, and C. No, we use A, B, and C. Okay, you do use A, B, and C. So I think it's the, I, I'm trying to remember who uses the A, B, and C. But the point is, we're not just saying, oh, the leg goes here, the foot goes here, the arm goes here, the spine does this. We're looking at the body in front of us. And you're saying that's why as a Mysore teacher, you know when someone's ready for something because you can feel it in your body. You almost mm -hmm. know when you look at them like, okay, today's the day where I'm going to teach them the next variation. When I go to adjust someone when it's not in a COVID time, I can almost feel it in my body. I mean, well, I mean, it, it's not an almost. You can feel it. Yeah. I mean, you can feel because after you've adjusted a thousand different bodies, which yeah. we both have, yeah. you know, when you put your hands on someone, you feel what, you know what the generic resistance is of kind of the generic human populace that you've worked with you know what the resistance of that person is specifically because you have touched them in that specific way enough. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, when a change happens, you feel it. It is, it is tactile. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when I, when I have my own assistants uh, and, I'm, and I'm teaching them to do things little bit by little bit, I often tell them, you know, don't trust your eyes all the time absolutely your, your eyes are going to lie to you because you your you know your eyes go in one direction they go forward certainly you can look side to side but you know you can't you can't get a 3d rendering of what's happening and your hands when you use your hands and also your legs and sometimes your torso depending on how involved you're getting with these things they give you extra information and that extra information is is highly valuable um and so it does it comes right through that it really comes right through that sometimes people i won't know why i've adjusted someone in a particular way until after i finished and then i say oh so i think i told someone once and they made a meme on meme on sanskrit around on instagram why do i keep using the word sanskrit today a meme on instagram <laughs> that said my um cognitive body my 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 um intuitive body is a, a, a creative genius and my cognitive body is a beauty school dropout <laughs> <laughs> because i just i you ask me why i did something ahead of time i'm not going to be able to tell you after it's happened, I can almost do the Monday morning quarterback thing, and I know why I adjusted someone a certain way. Mm -hmm. But my hands know what to do, so I have to just get out of the way and let them yeah. do it. I cannot be like, as you said, looking at someone's a very small part of the equation. I had a teacher in one of my trainings who actually had us teach blindfolded. We had to teach our peers, and we mm -hmm. they had to keep their blindfold on the whole time. We got to take it off for 15 seconds to register whatever we got intuitively in that 15 seconds. We had to put the blindfold back on and adjust them based on what we got from, the, it's more of an energetic hit. It's like you don't have enough time to scan. Right. 
the whole body. You have to just let it, as you said, that when you did that meditation with me before we started, there's a, a symphony and it's almost like something will speak to you. The body that you're working on will have a symphony that kind of, and you're Seiji Ozawa. I mean, you're saying, okay, you quiet. Now the woodwinds, you know, it's just this thing that you know to get the tempo, the meter, everything you were talking about. You can feel when someone's trying to rush through something. You can feel, you can see it in their breath. You can see it in their body. And you can see when they're trying to get somewhere fast. And it's almost like they're running away from themselves. And they're trying to accelerate past a, dis a discomfort. And I remember, because we both trained with Guta in the style of Deskachar, Vini, now again called Vini Yoga. It's been back and forth with that name. And I always think of when people raise, let's say, an arm or they do something where their they're, they're inflection extension limbs usually or the spine, and there's a tough spot, they try to go past it. And I always say to people, oh, it's like driving past your ex's house. You want to accelerate and get past it as quickly as possible. <laughs> and I'm like, no, you got to slow down and see what that's about. Because once you get comfortable with the discomfort, you can let it go. But if you keep zooming past that difficult place, you're just going to keep repeating and repeating and repeating, and you're just going to be stuck. So I think we both register when someone's trying to go past something. And yeah. I know that Iyengar would talk about some of the more basic poses as donkey work. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but they're necessary because if you... The, yeah, the, and it's, a, it's the same thing, you know, in Ashtanga, we have our Surya Namaskara and we have our fundamental asanas. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how advanced, quote unquote, you are. You're still going to do Prasarita Padottanasana A, B, C, and D. Which I love, by day. the way. I love that. that <laughs> <laughs> I, I like them, but sometimes, honestly, I get to a point where I'm, where I'm doing them, especially, you know, because so much of my practice is by myself, is alone is I do get into the middle of the fundamental asanas. I'm like, really? Again? I'm a little bit bored. Like, okay, maybe I can shorten it. Maybe not five breaths today, maybe four breaths today. Just speed it up a little bit. And then I catch myself and I'm like, what, I mean, Michael, really, what are you doing with your life? Like, what are you gonna do after this that is so freaking important or interesting that you can't like just give five breaths to Parjvakanasana? Why not? Enjoy yeah. it. You're breathing, your heart's pumping, you're warm. Like, come on. Yeah. Um, you said, you just said something that uh, brings me back to what you said earlier um, when, when, um, when you were talking about, uh, Find, finding teachers. Um, and you said something to the effect of, uh, you know, is, is this something that, that just feels good or am I getting information, you know? And because the getting of information honestly does not always feel good. Absolutely. And I've had a lot of, um, I had a, I did a, a few, trainings, shall we say, workshops, like extended, like even a week long, with um, a guy who talked about the theories of Hans Coet. And one of the archetypes in his schema of psychoanalysis was the benign adversarial. <laughs> and 
I've met a number of benign adversarials. They're people that are, they're not mirroring and giving you this, you're great, I see you're great. They're like, what are you doing? And it may be also in part, their stuff is getting kicked up by our presence. Mm -hmm. But the point is, they're sort of saying, we're not going there. You know, you are not, you're doing that again. I see you. And it's uncomfortable, but over time I start to, it's never easy, easy, but I can laugh a little bit at myself and say, oh, this is your typical prescribed role in a group, or this is your typical, you know, needing to feel this or that. And when I can step back and just say, sit in your discomfort, then I'm usually a lot happier. Mm. Usually, not always. Sometimes it's just like, yeah. And sometimes you just start to stew, right? Or you feel like I'm in this party that it's not that there's not good food. It's not that it's this or that. It's like it's freezing. I didn't wear warm enough clothes. No one's talking to me. I'm about to have too much to drink. Maybe I need to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if we go to our mutual friend Chris's house, mm -hmm. yes, what during non-COVID times, I would be what I call one of the usual suspects. There was like four or five straight women that would show up at every party, and the rest yes. were all gay men. Mm -hmm. And I realized that those you guys were not there to see us girls. So <laughs> oh really? Are you sure? <laughs> with the fact that I was not going to be sought after, and I one day, for example, I just said. I went to use the bathroom and then when I finished, I sat on a stool and I interviewed people about how they knew the two hosts, my our friend Chris and his roommate, mm -hmm. and what kind of man they were looking to meet. And everyone had a great time and I thought, I'm not trying to get them to interact with me, I'm just there helping them pass the time while they're waiting on the bathroom line. <laughs> it was just like this thing of like, just have fun, There's if you can find a way to not feel like, why is no one talking to me? And people are always friendly. I'm not making it, I'm, but there was a sense of just, just see things as they are and get out of your own narcissistic universe and just see what happens. And some teachers like you and I, we, we clash and then we were like, wait a second, that person's interesting and I respect where they're coming from. And that's how, that's why we're here together today. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, it's a really incredible thing when you can venture out of your own narcissistic universe. And I think that what we're, that's one of the things that we are attempting to do with, with yoga practice is, is step out of our own way. Like, you know, remove the giant obstacle that is the, the small self, the, the very egoic, very, this is me, this is my identity, and I don't want it to change um, type of thing. But, but honestly, it's, it's gorgeous when it happens, but it is frightening. It's stepping up to an edge and not knowing when you do what's going to happen. You know, with and I, some of the people that I'm the most fond of are people that I didn't have the best relationships with to begin with. Yeah, and I'm yeah. sure that there was some part of me that was resisting the change. I remember, this will make you laugh, 
Micropolo training. Most people would think, this is great. You got to go to the Berkshires for a month in the fall. I was down the street from Tanglewood. <laughs> I had a bunk in a large dormitory room that overlooked a lake and mountains. And all I did was call my friend. I called my boyfriend, um, actually, from a parking lot because we weren't allowed to have phones in the building. And I said, I fucking hate it here. I fucking hate it. <laughs> what was I thinking? This is fucking most fucking stupid thing I've ever done. So he was best friends with my friends, the husband of one of my friends. They actually had gone to Hebrew school together. Mm -hmm. And I met him at their wedding. So the friend, this his friend married my friend who was a social worker, a therapist. And she had known me for years. And she said, Anne hates change. She'll be fine. Don't worry. Just... <laughs> Just let it go. Don't just let hear her out. And he said that when he eventually saw me at my graduation, I was I was luminous. Like I was I was. I had spent twenty eight days like a rehab. You know, mm -hmm. I was in a place where I had to get up early in the morning. I had I was practicing yoga all day. Someone made food for us. They had really good food. I was I had a nice group of. Peers. There was a very large training of over 60 people, but they had us in small subgroups. So I had a group of three other people that I practiced with. I mean, all I had to do was study yoga, practice yoga, eat good food, go for walks, hop the fence at Canyon Ranch because I didn't have a an appointment to go shopping, but I needed a sports bra because I had made some unfortunate wardrobe choices when I went there. <laughs> And I, I hopped a, a kind of barbed wire fence. <laughs> and I was like, you're not supposed to do that. I said, we're going. Let's go. My God, this is, like, this is like dystopic handmaid's tale. All I wanted was a sports bra, and I had to hop a bob barbed wire fence to get it. Yeah, it, because someone said, don't you know you're supposed to make an appointment to go shopping if you're not a guest there? I was like, <laughs> so, yeah, my biggest problems were keeping the girls intact and then get in getting to, a, you know, forging this obstacle <laughs> to get something to keep me contained, which has been the, the story of my life. Keeping myself contained has always been a challenge. So, of course, <laughs> I would have to scale of a very tiny, not even scale. I had to hop over a barbed wire fence to make that happen. Yes. <laughs> Not metaphors, yes. That's such a beautiful story. <laughs> so, yeah, this is why Michael and I get along because we take what we we take the yoga seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Oh, this is true. This is so true. <laughs> I would say I would say to my students all the time, dignity is overrated. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And I mean, you always had an extraordinary dedication and still do to your practice and all the things that go with teaching yoga asana because we are asana teachers that also try to pepper in some of the philosophy and the lifestyle as, as our teacher Edwin Bryant would say you start with the asana maybe some people that's all they ever do but it gives you an introduction to something bigger and for some people the physical practice just invites the awareness. Yeah. For some people, the awareness is already there, and then they integrate the physical so that they can have an easier time sitting 
you know, sitting in meditation. They can have an easier time. As a friend of mine would say, who is who's an Ayurvedic practitioner who also has a doctorate in yoga and psychology, she said, well, the Ayurveda is to extend your life so that you can do yoga longer, the asana, and make, I would say to people, you do the asanas to make better choices. If you're not in physical pain and you're calmer, you're probably going to be a lot nicer yeah. or more rational. And when you need to hop a barbed wire fence, you're going to be able to contain yourself and do it in a, a graceful manner. <laughs> and, 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 you know, let's be sure about this. The barbed wire fence is going to happen. It's probably not going to be a physical barbed wire fence for most people, but there are going to be plenty barbed wire and possibly razor wire fences in your life that you are metaphorically going to have to climb over. And so you best be prepared, yeah? And have a sense of humor because my first experience with that kind of fence was my childhood friend. And he wanted me to go skating at his house. Mm -hmm. And he lived on a farm. He also taught me how to smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and go. we used to listen to Joni Mitchell and read Sylvia Plath and Ann Sexton. <laughs> we thought we were very clever. Uh, <laughs> and he lived on a farm and we were going to go ice skating and my sweatpants got caught on a razor fence that was to keep the cows from, it might even mean electric. So mm -hmm. I've had, yeah, that was not my first fence, let me tell you. And I know, and I've also tr had to go over subway turnstiles when I've been in a hurry to teach. So please forgive me, the universe. I always bought a monthly before COVID. But sometimes the monthly would expire and I wouldn't know until I was going out in the morning and I would just try to leg it over. <laughs> Very bad thing. My One of my students was like, you're lucky you have not been arrested. And um, sometimes I think about it, I think like, yeah, if I was a young boy, if I was a kid in a certain neighborhood, I would not have been so lucky. I'm just going to say it. Um, yeah, so I laugh about it, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah. You had a lot of white privilege to do that. The confidence that no one was going to, 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 you know, bust you for doing that. But now that it's COVID, I only use an, uh, I buy a, a amount of money, and I always follow the rules because EMTA needs our help right now. So sometimes I follow the rules. Sometimes I don't. Yeah, there's obstacles, and the more you can expand. I think, and have a sense of strength and fluidity, the easier it is to navigate those obstacles. So I'm not just talking about it in a physical sense, but an, an, an emotional, energetic sense of who you are. Yeah. Well, that sounds nice, Anne. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, think, I think that wraps it up pretty well. Um, okay. So thank you for coming on today and spending a little time with me. And you know, anytime that you're you're out on a disaster date and I happen to be walking by, feel free to bring me over, you know, I don't mind. And and I'll do the same with you too, because you know. Please do, we should start posting. Well, I'll add to that soon. I'm gonna to all your listeners, you can edit this out. My ex mm -hmm. apparently saw me and went into the cafe 
and said you, that I looked at them and didn't and ignore them. I was like, no, I didn't see you. Yeah. Instead, did you see me talking to my friend? Blah blah blah. I, I he doesn't know who you are, but I just referenced you. But I was just thinking that that was like a disaster date of epic proportions, and you were the highlight. <laughs> well, well you know, there there is no such thing as coincidence, right? These things all no, like, no, and I'm so the glad. Karma spins out for a reason, yeah. <laughs> well, it's like when you think something's really terrible, it's just moving you in a direction that you don't know what's going to happen, where you're going to be. And here I am today talking to you. Actually, one week later. Yes. Exactly. So, so thank you so much. I had an amazing time. Thank you, Anne.